Each year I go to a gathering. It's called Twin Lakes Fellowship. I've been going there since I was in seminary. Actually, yeah, since I was in seminary. And it's at Twin Lakes Conference Center in, uh, I believe it's Florence, Mississippi, which is when I was pastoring in Mississippi, it was just a 20-minute drive. And so I could just get there really easily, but now I fly across the country. And I have just made lifelong pastor friends at this pastor's conference. Every year we have different people come and preach for us and teach us on different issues. And this year the theme was Ministry in Light of Eternity. And Craig Troxell is uh, a teacher at Westminster Seminary in California. He was our speaker this year. And so he talked about actually some overlap with some things that I'll be getting to when we go back to Matthew. So when we get back to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see in Christ's Sermon on the Mount where he talks about uh, not storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but storing up treasures in heaven and what that actually means. And I thought that he did, he did a wonderful job of just helping me to appreciate more. We're not talking about a heavenly mansion. We're not talking about heavenly treasures, the kind that you can lay your hands on. And when you get there, you'll get them. The, the heavenly treasures that we enjoy are Christ himself and his benefits and his blessings. And it was very eye-opening for me to better understand that passage. Um, but he talked a lot about how we, what does it mean for a minister not to love this world and to love Jesus more than his own life. And so we had three worship services. What I'm going to do is pass this little book around. This is just our, this is just our order. This is just what we did. So if you want to know what I was doing this last week, then you can take a look at this and you can see if you find that interesting. If you don't, just keep it going. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to keep it. Um, one of the things they do, though, is they give us a lot of free books. They put a lot of books in our hands. Part of the idea is they want to put resources into our hands so that when we go back to the church that we serve, we're able to make good book recommendations. And one of the books that, that, they, that they gave us was this one by Guy Waters. Actually, no, they didn't give us this for free. I paid $5 for it. They have, a, they have a bookstore there where they sell everything really cheap. And so Guy Waters was one of my professors at RTS. He wrote a bigger book called How Jesus Runs the Church that I think I recommended here at one point uh, in the past. It's probably been a while. And this is like a shorter version of that. So it's 100 pages. Uh, it's 100 pages sopping wet. Actually, there's an appendix and stuff. Without the appendix, it's only 80 pages. And it's 80 pages where the idea is you put this in someone's hand if they want to understand our church government and in the PCA, but you don't want to overwhelm them. You give somebody a 200-page book and say, here, now you can understand how our church works. That can be really overwhelming. And so he, he knew there was a need for a shorter book. And so even in the back, it has our vows of church membership in here. He really is just helping somebody understand more our polity without getting an overwhelming just tome that, you, you know, you could use as a doorstop, that kind of thing. So that's what this is. So I'm going to pass this around and I'm going to pass this around. You can take a look and see. One of the other nice things that they do uh, at Twin Lakes is they have us sing a lot of psalms and they have us sing a lot of songs perhaps that we don't normally hear. And so you have about 200 guys in that room. It's all men, um, except for maybe a few ladies that help volunteer. But it's just hearing 200 men sing. And they're all pastors, so they kind of know how to handle their hymnals. So it's just this booming sound of all these type A personalities singing at the exact same time. Very impressive to listen to. So 
Uh, I would say try it sometime, but you can't. It's very exclusive. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I'm going to pass something else around. I don't always do two books. But last week, last week I was talking to Benjamin, and he said he knew we were going to talk about the Apostle Paul this week. And he said, what is a book that you would recommend on the life of the Apostle Paul? And without hesitation, I can tell you this is, I think, of all the books I've ever read about the life of Paul, this is the best one. And it's, called, it's by Paul Barnett, and it's called Paul, Missionary of Jesus. And he uses lots of scripture references. Everything he says is footnoted and scripture referenced, so you know that he's not just getting creative with this book. And a lot of the material I'm about to teach you about the life of the Apostle Paul is just straight up stolen and summarized from this book. So if you want to read a longer version that gets more in-depth uh, on the life and ministry of Paul, this is my favorite book. And I'm going to send this around as well so that you can all look at that. So I'll send this. I'll start this over here with Jeff. Um, so we finished the book of Acts again. It, it always feels weird to say finished because we barely scratched the surface of these books, right? We're just trying to do summaries. We're trying to touch on the themes of these various books. And last week we, we did the book of Acts, but I promised we would get deeper into the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, who was the Apostle Paul? Paul was a former Pharisee. He actually describes himself uh, in uh, Galatians 1.14 as someone who's a former Pharisee who was very zealous. And when you ask him, what were you zealous for? He says he was not specifically zealous for the teaching of scripture, but he was zealous for the traditions of the Jews. So I think that's interesting that he doesn't say, I was really zealous for the scriptures. He says, I was zealous for the tradition of the Jews. Uh, he was the author of 13 books of the New Testament, certainly by far the most pro prolific of the New Testament authors. Uh, he was a disciple of Jesus for half his life, from approximately the age of 29 to the age of 59. So half his life, he's serving Jesus. Uh, he introduces himself this way in the book of Romans. He says he was a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So that's his sense of self. That's who he says that he is. That's how he understands himself to be. Um, even though Paul was the most important theologian in the history of the Christian church, he was not uh, necessarily a theologian first and foremost. He was an evangelist and a church planter. That's his job. That's his calling. That's what he ended up doing with his life. He was bivocational. He supported himself as a tent maker. Uh, understand something about tent making in the first century. We, we think of tents, you know, and we think of plastic, you know, we think of vinyl, we think of, well, whatever tents are made of. You, you saw from the sign, I'm not staying in a tent. Uh, if you looked at the sign-up sheet, you saw in big, bold letters, the Parkers are wimping out and they're staying in a hotel. And that's true because I don't know anything about camping and I'm, a, I'm the princess in the pea. I'm the princess from that. Uh, <laughs> so I don't even know what tents are made of. Some kind of plastic. Anyway, but in the first century, we're talking about hard, heavy, thick uh, leather that can handle the elements, right? You're talking about something, the, the kind of man who works with his hands, a hardworking guy uh, who knows what it's like to uh, work with animal skins and 
he's a tough dude. He's going to be a tough guy. In fact, Pharisees were not, you know, it wasn't a paid position. A Pharisee was somebody who supported himself. He took care of himself. He paid his own way. It wasn't a paid job. And so all Pharisees had to do something like that. Um, here's the question, though. Why study the life of Paul? You know, why don't we just read Paul's letters? Why not just get right to Romans, right? That's the next book after Acts. Why not open Romans and just go right to it? And I want to give you a few reasons why we should read Paul's letters. Actually, before I do give my own answers, I want to ask you, why would we want to study the life of the Apostle Paul? Crowdsource this a little bit. Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, fundamentally, I think that might be the most primary reason. Um, and laid the, as we've been reminded, mm-hmm. laid down foundational truths that we can read today for church operation, life function, marriage, etc. All right, this is a this is a fundamentally important individual for the church. Seems negligent not to study his life. Jeff, did you have something? Yeah, uh, I think he's. I might be wrong, but I think he's the bridge between Judaism and the rest of the world. Work for, for men like Paul. Barnabas, um, the rest of us, I mean, Christ is the savior of the whole world, and he, he basically made it from a Nazarene sect of Judaism to something that uh, pagans, the Romans, the Greeks, We have Paul to thank for so many Gentiles coming to faith and standing in that gap, right? He's a Jewish guy, but he's going and ministering to Gentiles. That's really fundamentally important. Yeah, Asha. Yeah, his life was miserable. <laughs> and Asha says she finds that encouraging. Actually, it, it is. Um, and actually, he thinks his life's important, right? Because he's always talking. He's, he goes autobiographical in Philippians. He goes autobiographical in Galatians. Um, multiple times, he's talking about himself. He actually does, in his letters, point to himself. And so he's, he's inviting you to do exactly what we're going to be doing. Right. Um, uh, Hebrews thirteen seven commands us. It says, "Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith." Seems like Hebrews is is telling us to do this precise thing with those who come before us. We should know their lives. Their biographies are relevant. Um, Luke thought his biography was important enough to include it in the book of Acts. Right? If Paul's story is not important, then you know the book of Acts is a lot shorter. Um, also, this is, I think, one of the reasons, too. Understanding his life before he meets Jesus helps us understand what he was saved from when Jesus converted him. I think we know very little. We initially think there's very little to know about Paul. I think you're going to see this morning, there's actually a lot we can know about Paul's early life. Um, so let's talk about sources. What are the sources for Paul's life? We need to, to stop thinking of the Bible as a source. We need to not think of the Bible as a single source because the Bible is made up of multiple books. The New Testament, a number of books and letters compiled together, but each of them on their own are actually an individual document, right? So we have Paul's own letters as a source for his life, really significant, right? The books of Romans through Philemon are all sources to help us know about more about Paul. The book of Acts 
It was written by one of Paul's companions, by Luke the physician. So this is a guy who knew him, who saw him up close, who saw how he lived, and especially, you, you find out, really knew what it, how he operated under pressure. Some people are really smooth. Some people seem really great uh, until things get stressful, right? Until, until traffic gets bad, you don't find out what the person's really like. And, well, Paul, Paul, Paul sees some bad traffic. And... Something else, and Paul Barnett points it out in that book. He points this out. He says, it is so rare in antiquity to have letters from a historical figure and a contemporary account of their life, right? Julius Caesar, like we have, we have scant copies of his letters and of his writings and the earliest accounts of his life come hundreds of years later, right? We don't have, we don't have good material normally of somebody uh, uh, at the same time that we actually have their writings. So this is actually really remarkable that we get to have his own interpretation of his life and Luke's interpretation of his life side by side. You also have some writings from people like Peter who make reference to Paul as well in his own letters. So let's talk about Paul. Let's talk about Paul's childhood. Uh According to Acts 22.3, Saul is born in Tarsus, Tarsus of Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. So that's where he's born. You'll notice Tarsus ends up, if you're looking at the missionary journeys, you notice that Tarsus figures largely in Paul's life. So how old is Paul? How old is Paul when he gets converted? Well, here we go. Uh, if the book of Acts takes place in the year 34 AD, in that passage, Luke calls Paul a young man. He calls him a young man in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And then in approximately 55 AD, the book of Philemon chapter 9, Paul calls himself an old man. So here, 20 years earlier, He's a young man, 55 AD. He's an old man. And so in Jewish tradition uh, of the time, an old man was approximately somebody who was in his 60s. So if you're in your 60s, according to Judaism, you're an old man. So if you, based on these statements, based on the dates in which they were made, in which these letters were written, Paul Barnett estimates that when Acts 7.58 was written, or when the events of Acts 7.58 take place, he was a young man, and that would have made him around 30 years old. He would have been around 30 years old in 34 AD. And when he calls himself an old man in Philemon, then he would have been in his early to mid-50s. So you piece those things together, and you have Paul Barnett calculates that his birthday is probably 5 AD. Now, is that precision? No. But even if you're giving or taking 10 years, it's not a bad estimation of how old he is. Um, it's, it, it, it at least gives you an idea of the timeline of Paul's life. Now, another indicator, not of the timeline, but of what Paul's childhood would have been like, comes from Philippians 1. Because he says this of himself. He says, first he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. It's one of the things he says about himself. He says he was of the people of Israel. Right? So he's a Jewish person from a Jewish family who clearly identify themselves as Jewish. They live as Jews. 
Third, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's giving you his Hebrew pedigrees. Uh, and he, fourth, he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's what he describes. Um, I remember Zola Levitt one time wrote a, I don't know if you know who Zola Levitt is. Anyone know Zola Levitt, that name? He, uh, I think he did uh, Jews for Jesus, I think was the organization he was with. But he wrote a book called Jesus, the Jews Jew. And the whole book is about how Jesus was very Jewish and he fulfilled what it meant to be a Jew. Um, well, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I'm a Hebrews Hebrew. Um, Paul, um, Paul would have learned Greek and Hebrew from an early age. You notice uh, as you read uh, all of his books that his Greek is perfect. His Greek is very fluent. He knows what he's doing. He often quotes from Greek and Hebrew versions of the Bible. Uh, don't know if you know this. I think most of you probably do. But the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And yet by the time of the New Testament, the version that your average person is, is using is probably the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's translated into Greek so that even Greek-speaking people can read the Old Testament. And so sometimes you'll notice New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint, and sometimes you'll notice they quote from the Hebrew. Uh, They don't quote the Hebrew. They make their own interpretation of it. But uh, the readers can at least tell the difference. Um, Scholars can tell the difference when they're looking. So he would have been bilingual at least. He would have known Greek and Hebrew. Um, what we see here, in other words, is the, this picture of a young man who's brought up in a zealous first century Jewish home, a child whose parents brought him up in a rigorous religious environment. To Paul, from a very young age, these things are paramount. These things are important to know what the traditions of Judaism are. So as a young man, Paul makes a statement in Acts 22, 3. He says, even though he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. Now, scholars don't agree on whether Paul went between Jerusalem and Tarsus, whether he sort of went back and forth, or whether he basically intends to say that he spent his whole life being brought up in Jerusalem. So we don't know if he really thinks of himself as somebody who's from Tarsus, or if he really thinks of himself as somebody who's from Jerusalem. But that's what he says. Um, Paul's being from Tarsus, he's actually a citizen of Tarsus. This is really important. Uh, in fact, I was talking to John Elliott, and he was talking about just how, uh, is John here? Uh, I don't see him. Um, John was talking to me about Roman citizenship and what it actually means, and we're going to talk more about, about citizenship in a little bit. But his citizenship in Tarsus means a few things about his family, so you can discern some things about his life. Saul's father must have had substantial wealth because you had to own property worth two years wages in order to become a citizen in Tarsus. So that's 500 drachma for what it's worth. And I know all of us know exactly what a drachma is worth. But, you know, add up two years of the average person's wages and that's how much you had to have on hand in order to become a citizen. So, you know, we're used as Americans to being born here, and so, oh, we're a citizen, right? Or we come here from another country, and we work to gain our citizenship. But we're used to most people around us here being citizens. That's not the way the Roman Empire worked in the least bit. Um, Later on, Paul actually gives us more information. He says that in Romans, uh, he reveals to the Romans that he is a Roman citizen by birth. So it's his dad who has the money. 
right? His, it's his dad who's, who is, uh, had got his citizenship, and so he's born to someone who's a citizen, and that's the way Paul gets his. So we can summarize. We can say a few things. Uh, we at least know that Paul came from a wealthy family in a place of privilege, and Barnett says this. He says, Saul belonged to the social elite of Cilicia, though we can only infer some things based on Paul's fluency and comfort with Greek. So at some point he comes to live in Jerusalem. He at least spent enough of his youth there that he felt justified in saying he was brought up in Jerusalem, right? He grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place that he really sees as his home. Even though he's from Tarsus, that's where his citizenship is. He's really a Jerusalemite. Uh, uh, As somebody who's lived in multiple places, I don't even know where to tell people I'm from anymore. I just tell people I'm a mutt. Um, but, but Paul says, no, nah, I'm, I'm a Jerusalemite. I'm a, if, if that's a word, he says, that's me. Um, let's talk about Saul as a student or Paul as a student. He says in Acts 22, three, by the, by the way, Acts 22 is just a gold mine because he's basically giving his version of his life to these rulers. And so it's a really great place to just hear his version of, of these things. He says that in Acts 22, three, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, we know a few things about Gamaliel in Acts 5.34. We know that it says that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It says that he was universally respected. When this guy got up to speak, people listened to him. He's not a nobody. Um, we also know that he recommended that the, that the Sanhedrin give a lenient verdict to the Christians. Do you guys remember what he said when Gamaliel spoke? What did he say? He said, take care. Because if these guys are nothing, it'll come to nothing. But if it's from God, you might be uh, actually working against God. So just let it play out. Yeah. The very, I, I think that sounds, like wise, that sounds like wise advice. He's saying it's more dangerous to act than not. Uh, and they heed his, his warning. Um, we actually have other documents that tell us about Gamaliel. You have the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a book of Jewish traditions. They date back to the time of Jesus. This is what the Mishnah says about Gamaliel. Um, by the way, uh, yeah, this is like embarrassing almost, just how glowing they are about Gamaliel. When Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah ceased and purity and separateness died. Like, that's, that's crazy. Don't say that about somebody. <laughs> but they did. They held, the, the authors of the Mishnah held Gamaliel in that kind of regard. Um, we know a few things, a few other things about Gamaliel. You have a, the, the Talmud. It said that Gamaliel's stu- school had a thousand students at a time. And so 500 of the students studied Hebrew literature and 500 students studied Greek literature. And then when they were finished in each one, then they would switch. And then they would learn all of the Greek and they would learn all the Hebrew. So this is not a small time operation. Think about what it takes to have a thousand students. I think this year at St. Stephen's, is it 300, 300 students between the, the upper and the lower school? Um, just, that's a big operation. And move it up to 1,000. I, I went to a school with 100 students in the whole school. Uh, there were 12 students in my class, and there were four girls, and there were like eight guys. So there's a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict in that class. Um, <laughs> But I don't even know what it's like to be one of you people who grew up and went to a school where you had a graduating class of 100 or more students. I don't even know what it would be like to, to be in a class where you don't know everybody. 
Um, this is a big school. And um, it was a big deal also to be accepted into Gamaliel School because here's the deal in a Jewish society, everybody wants to be in Gamaliel School. Um, Paul Barnett says this, Saul was a disciple of the most prominent rabbi of the era. When he trots out or name drops Gamaliel, it means something. And he does name drop Gamaliel. Um, we know Paul is a very zealous Jew. In Philippians 3, he gives us almost biographical recounting of his background, of his qualifications. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists all of those uh, Jewish bona fides that I mentioned before. Uh, you know, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's, that's Saul. That's Paul. Uh, as to Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Um, I mentioned this before, but this is, this is the upbringing, this is the lifestyle of a very serious student. It's not a student of the law, it's a student of Jewish tradition, and there's a difference there. And by that time, a lot of material had developed in the first century in terms of what the tradition was, what the things that were expected of people. And Paul's own conclusion in that passage in Philippians is that all of these things he mentions about himself were worthless to give him peace with God. So he's, he's riding the treadmill. He's running the treadmill. He's running the spiritual treadmill. He's working and working and working. And he runs it to the very end and he finds that there's nothing there. Um, and one very last important thing needs to be understood. And I think it's something that we miss. It's something we all miss. I think Paul Barnett's book was the first time I realized it. But Paul is living in Jerusalem at the same time as Jesus. You know, we think of Paul as maybe air dropping in, coming in because he heard there was trouble in Jerusalem or or something like that. Um, And so but what that means is that Paul may have heard Jesus speak. This is just speculation. I don't know. Uh, Almost certainly the work of Jesus didn't go unnoticed among the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And presumably that means that this young 30 year old Saul would have known of Christ's teachings maybe in a secondhand way, some sort of recounting of what he was teaching, some sort of version of what he may have been saying, and he may very well have been aware of Jesus. You imagine most of the people living in Jerusalem, and Jesus is causing an uproar. The idea that uh, somebody in the religious elite of the city is entirely unaware of Jesus is actually very difficult to imagine. Um. So I just sometimes, I, I kind of pause to think, I wonder if he saw him before. Maybe he heard his teachings and opposed it and hated what he heard. Or he heard it all secondhand. We don't, we don't particularly know. So maybe speculation's best just left as speculation. But we often miss the fact that Paul is converted very soon after the resurrection, right? Again, we think, oh, Acts chapter 9, this must be so much later. And we think this is so many years between the resurrection and Saul's conversion. Actually, no, Paul's converted within a year of the resurrection of Jesus, right? The death of Stephen is very early on in the life of the church. And, and Saul is converted soon after the death of Stephen. So let's talk about Saul as the persecutor of the church What was it that caused Saul of Tarsus to begin persecuting the church? Um, There's no time for too much detail. I won't walk you through all of Stephen's sermon. But look at if you look at Stephen's speech in Acts chapter seven, that's the speech that gets him killed. 
That's the instigating speech. That's the speech where once he gives it, Saul decides to change his approach. He decides to no longer look at these people the way Gamaliel does, right? Gamaliel is like, maybe let them off the hook. Saul's approach, though, after hearing Stephen's sermon is approval of persecution. So his policy changes. Uh, In the speech that gets Stephen uh, killed, what does he do? He criticizes the Jewish authorities. And even more offensive to the Jews, he criticizes the centrality of the temple. He goes after the temple. And Daryl Bach, who's got a really good commentary on Acts, one of the the best, one of the top three that I would recommend to anybody. But Daryl Bach, he characterizes Stephen's speech this way. He says, the temple was never designed to confine God, but was intended to be a place of worship to him alone as the one true God. That's Stephen's speech. So for Stephen... God's mission is not to bring the nations to Jerusalem. It's to take the message out from Jerusalem. So he's like, you guys are so Jerusalem-centric. He says, you need to be Jesus-centric. And Jesus is the savior of the whole world, not of this city. And when he does that, oh man, does it get the authorities angry. And so the reaction to Stephen's preaching has this racial component to it, right? There's this racial assumption that says our race is the chosen race. Our people are the chosen people. And if the nations want to be saved, they need to come in. They need to become one of us. They need to become one of us. And so you have this sentiment that is almost certainly a factor in the violent reaction to Stephen's preaching. Yeah, Larry. I don't think he endeared them uh, himself to them either by telling them, you know, you're just like your fathers. Which one of the fathers, uh, your fathers did not persecute and kill the prophets? Yeah, yeah. No so he's, not only is he saying you're like your father, which no one wants to be told that, right? Nobody. Anybody ever have a marriage fight that goes well where you say you're acting just like your mother? You ever have a great, does that ever have a happy outcome? <laughs> Like, no, <laughs> no one wants to hear that. <laughs> um, even if they really like their mother, like, no, I'm not. Um, and that's what he does. He says, you're like your parents. And then he accuses their parents of really terrible sin. Which was true. And it was all true. Yeah. And you could just see how multiple that he's piling it on. Yeah. So, but he's also, it's not needless. It's not like he's being provocative. He's telling them the truth about themselves. And no one wants to know the truth about themselves. Uh, so um, for, uh, the thing that changes Paul's attitude from this almost laid back indifference to persecution was this radical teaching of Stephen. Stephen's radical assault on the temple. That's what he's doing here. This building is unnecessary. This building is superfluous. You don't need it. You don't need the sacrifices taking place in this building. All these sacrifices do is point us to the Savior who has already come, right? We don't need this building anymore. Why are you so obsessed with it, right? And so here's what happens. It, you have this violent reaction. And then what is the result of the death of Stephen? It's Philip's mission to the Samaritans and the God-fearers, 
right? Because then what happens? Then Philip goes, he speaks with the Ethiopian eunuch. The message of the gospel gets taken to Africa. And you have um, the Samaritans who are also hearing the gospel. So God uses the death of Stephen and he uses Paul to do this, right? So, so even as Paul is, he thinks he might be squashing it. He thinks he might be getting rid of it. Uh, instead, he's actually spurring evangelism. Saul is actually spurring evangelism because as he's persecuting the church, he's being used by God to do the the very thing that angered him about Stephen's speech, right? He doesn't like the idea of the gospel going out. Persecution happens. What does everybody do? They go out. (laughs) He's he's sending them forcefully away. He's being used by God. And so he's, he's spreading the gospel even before he's converted, really. So the, the beauty of the experience on the Damascus Road, we already talked about Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road, but the, the, the beauty about the experience on the Damascus Road, a chapter after Saul participates in this murder is, is not that God changes his name to Saul. Instead, it's that the very message of Stephen that so angered him is the exact same message that is about to captivate his heart. And it's the same message that's going to become the very mission of the rest of his life. See, what does he say later? He says, I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he has not been previously named. He wants to go to the weird territory. He wants to go to the places that the name of Jesus just isn't heard and just isn't spoken. Um, Now, let's talk about his conversion. You know, obviously Saul gets converted. He gets brought to Christ. Again, we're talking about... This year, basically, this is when it happens. Um, I think many of us know the story of Saul's conversion. We find it in Acts 9, 1 to 16. Uh, Among the things that God tells Ananias in the passage, remember, he gets blinded and then he gets sent to Ananias. And God tells Ananias some things about this man before he arrives. And among the things that God tells him in this passage that have massive bearing on our understanding of Paul's life is in verse 15 of Romans of Acts chapter 9. And basically God tells Ananias the purpose of his life and the reason why God chose to convert him. By the way, wouldn't we love that for our own lives? Like <laughs> to have that. Oh, I got converted. Well, here's the here's the purpose of your life. Well, that doesn't happen for uh, most Christians at all. Uh, instead, he gives us general principles from scripture about what our life is meant to be, be about. But Paul has something specific. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So, so in Paul's letters, he has this awareness of his purpose. He knows that his work is the work of an evangelist. He knows that his mission is to tell others that message that he tried so hard to stamp out. And now his job is to take it to Gentiles. And he doesn't, he doesn't say it to the exclusion of Israel. He says, she says, actually, I'm supposed to take it to the children of Israel as well. So he's going to these Gentile places, but he always makes sure, we'll talk about this more. He always made sure to, that the Jewish people had an opportunity to hear the gospel. But he also didn't delay. It's not like he sat around and said, well, maybe some of them will come around. Let's hang out for a while. No, he moves very quickly. Um, but in Paul's letters, you see, this, you see this awareness of a purpose. Paul realizes his work is the work of an evangelist. His mission is to tell the very message that he was so incensed against when he tried to destroy the church. 
You actually see this awareness in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says that he has been entrusted with a commission. He says, I've been entrusted with a commission. And then he says in the same passage that he preaches because necessity is laid upon him, right? He says, I have to. I have to. This is the purpose of my life. This is why I exist. If, this, if I wasn't doing this, I would not be living out my purpose and the reason why I was born. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Um, we get some more biographical material in Galatians 2. Paul is talking about his meeting with the three pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And he says, I laid before them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. When they saw, so, so in other words, he goes to the, these guys in Jerusalem and he says, let me tell you what I'm preaching. Let me, let me tell you the message that I'm preaching and tell me if it's the same message you are preaching as well. So he says, I laid it before them. And he says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. So they have heard the message that Paul is preaching. They are satisfied that Paul is preaching the same gospel that they are. And they are giving him their, their handshake. He's, they're giving the right hand of fellowship. They're giving approval to their ministry and saying, yes, this is the same gospel we preach. We are preaching the same message. We are not preaching across purposes. You have seen the same Jesus that we have seen. And so from that day forward, Paul regarded himself as called to the special task of carrying the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. Something you need to, to think about in, in, with this Damascus Road experience is that you never see Paul finally get over the fact that he saw the risen Jesus. He never gets over it. It never becomes this ancient part of his history that becomes no big deal at all. Instead, almost every letter that Paul writes makes reference to the resurrected Lord. He makes reference to the resurrection, makes reference to the fact that he's the risen Lord, that he's seen Jesus, that he's seen the Lord. By the way, if you saw the risen Jesus, you would do that in all your letters too. You would constantly be going back to it, remembering it. Uh, you would be so changed by it. And that's exactly how Paul acts. He acts like somebody whose life has been changed very radically and that he, he can't believe some people aren't getting over it. Like, are getting over it. He can't believe that anybody would, 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 he, would even not believe this message because he's so been changed by it. Um, and it all goes back to the road to Damascus. So here's what happens on the road to Damascus. Paul's entire world is broken apart. Think of the life, you know, we talked about his early years. Think of everything that's being laid. Think of the foundation that's being laid. Think of... The predictable path he is set to follow. The life of a traditional Jewish, zealous, first century Pharisee. That's what he's supposed to do. And he's following it. He's following that playbook to a T. He is he's the serious, straightforward guy that his parents hoped he would be from a young age. Like the path is laid in front of him. And then when the road to Damascus happens and he is blinded, here's what happens. His entire world gets broken apart and it gets put back together the way God intends for it to be. And so um, he had everything that you could imagine that would have commended him before God from a Jewish perspective. But when he sees the risen Jesus, he realizes his absolute need 
to apprehend Christ by faith. And he realizes the worthlessness of all the work that he has been doing and all of the labors he has been investing in and all the worthlessness of the traditions that he has been imbibing. And and that is the message that he ends up preaching for the rest of his days. Right. So here's what we've here's what we've done. We have covered the first 25 to 30 years of Paul's life. We basically got up to this moment right here. And uh, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that there's a lot more stuff that happens. And, and so the next class, uh, I look forward to moving further into Paul's story. As we start to look at what happens to Paul after his experience on the Damascus Road, and especially discussing the, the most serious conflicts that Paul faces. You know, one of the things Asha said was his life was pretty miserable. And I would say up to this point, it hasn't been yet, right? Until, <laughs> until he meets Jesus, his life is like on a smooth road and he's going the way he's supposed to be going. And he's probably just well taken care of, well dressed guy from an upper class family. He has the charms. Uh, he has all the things in life that you could probably want if you're in his position. And everything after this from a worldly perspective, goes downhill. And he becomes a guy who gets attacked, almost murdered over and over again. Uh, You know, you probably know the laundry list of all the things Paul's about to go through. But we need to contextualize it. We need to understand what's really going on there. And that's what I'd like us to do in the next class. John, we have three minutes. What kind of questions do you maybe have about the early life of Paul? Uh, The conversion experience on on the road was... I kind of see it as being called to life, like Lazarus being brought out. I mean, it's not like uh, Paul or Jesus. Let me think about this. I mean, this is a big change in my life. It was instantaneous change going from the spiritual death to spiritual life. Yeah. And that's why I mean, it's just God calls him. That's the way it is. He does. And he actually preaches early on, too almost as soon as he gets converted. But then he disappears, I think, for 13 years. So it's almost like he goes, it's not time yet. And he, he like goes off the grid. But yeah, he does have this. I mean, it's an immediate turnaround. Because Saul proclaims Jesus in the synagogue as soon as the scales fall off his eyes. He gets a bite to eat. And a few days later, boom, he's in the synagogue saying Jesus is the son of God. And it's an uproar because they know who Saul is. Yeah. Yeah, Jack, Jake. I have a question about he, he was a tent maker. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make him, like, would he be, have been dressed in the night? Wouldn't that have made him a smelly kind of gnarly guy? You don't get the impression from Paul's letters that he had much of an appearance that anybody would be excited to be around him, <laughs> you know? He's the, he's the guy that slips in the back and people move a few seats away, you know. <laughs> there are, there are um, some early portraits also, not physical portraits, but like early church writings. And I wish I could tell you which ones they were so I could remember. But they were within 100 years of Paul's life. And there were some descriptions of what Paul looked like. And they were passed down to other people. And, you know, picture a shortish, bald man who ha- was covered in scars. And that's about, that's about as close as you get to a description. But 
And they work with leather. So tent making is not like, oh, you get your leather from someone somewhere else. You know, they're tanning the animals and tanning is disgusting work. I don't know in the first century if it involved lime, but typically that's the way that that kind of stuff is done. So, you, you know, you could imagine him working with chemicals that would wear on his hands. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy. So this question, I wondered when you were talking, what was a Benjamite doing in this giant school of Gamaliel? What was that all about? Like, were they opening the priesthood to everybody, or was it just like everybody's like a lay leader, or what was, what was that school? Uh, you mean what are they being trained up for? Yeah. Like, why is a Benjamite there being trained by yeah, I don't know exactly career-wise what the end result is supposed to be of this school. It may be that really what every Jewish person wants for their kids is to, for them to ultimately be a member of the Sanhedrin. It, it may be exactly why he's going to Jerusalem in the first place. You need to be close to it so you can be part of it, so you can get ingrained. and be. So that may, I mean, what higher task is there to do than to be in the Sanhedrin? Probably none for a Jewish person in the first century. Well, we are out of time. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll, we'll part ways and then uh, we'll come back again this next week. I, I love the life of, of Paul. I'm just so enthused by it. So maybe you can tell, I don't know. Heavenly Father, we thank you for raising up servants. We thank you that what is needed, you give. Whatever it is that your church needs at hand, you are ready to grant to your people. And we thank you for the gift as as the author of Hebrews tells us, Lord, thank you for those who brought us the faith, those who um, instructed us in the Lord, uh, those who didn't leave us without a witness. Thank you for not only sending us Christ, but sending us messengers to tell us about Christ. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for changing his life, changing his heart. And thank you for the gospel that he proclaimed. Thank you for preserving his writings and his letters so that we could have the very words of God saved for us. I pray that you would give us a love, not of Paul, but a love of Jesus. Help us to delight in his Lord, the one who changed him and saved him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.